One of the great challenges, though, to the Christmas season is the contrast between the light and the dark. Between the glitter of decorations on our trees and the sometimes too much litter in our souls. Between the very real sorrow people live with and the celebration of the joy of the Christmas season. Between the very real pain and suffering of our lives and the happy faces, the happy cookies, the happy songs. Between the very real chaos and confusion and evil, as we were reminded of so horribly this week, contrasted with the glad tidings of peace on earth. Between the profound hopelessness that defines so many lives with the hope of Christmas. Right in this room, I know our lives are not always as shiny and bright as we often portray them to be. I know for every vision of sugar plums dancing in our heads, there are realities of illness and disease that we are dealing with. Just behind every dream of silent nights, there are the nightmares of shattered expectations of what we thought life would be like. And veiled behind every wish for truth, there are broken relationships, crippled families, and the casualties caused by untruth. Just this week, we as a community have been praying for Jen Bronson and her family as her cousin Bill passed away. His wife and children now without a dad, without a husband. We prayed earlier in the week for two atricious friends. One family lost the mom. Another family lost a 19-year-old daughter. And all of us have been impacted by the profound evil that has visited a small town in rural Connecticut. And each of us have our own stories of individual pain, suffering, hopelessness. Maybe we're ill. Maybe we have a family member that's ill. Maybe our friendships don't make a lot of sense right now or our relationships are crumbling. Maybe our families are falling apart. Maybe we've lost our jobs or we just struggle all the time to get by financially. Maybe we're true victims of others in humanity as so many people are in this world. Or maybe we just always have a sense of hurt. Maybe we're in the midst of an especially long season of despair or lack of faith. Or maybe we just wish our lives were different. Maybe we had a little more luck or maybe we had made better decisions along the way. Maybe we're just simply tired and just can't deal anymore and celebrating Christmas is the last thing we want to do. But here's the thing about the story of the birth of Christ. It is exactly our messes, it is exactly our pains and our doubts and our hurts and our struggles and our confusion. It is exactly our broken relationships, our hopeless situations and our sufferings that are the very mangers God chooses to be born. See, we tend to think God is more like Sam. Sorry, I forgot my clicker. I know that's... we got to get the house ready. we got to get it all cleaned up. we got to decorate the tree. we got to make the cookies. we got to put out the glass of milk. Or a good glass of craft beer if you're in my house, depending on Santa likes. we got to wrap the presents. We've got to get ready. we got to make it perfect before he comes. 
But that's this fellow's story. That's not the story of the birth of God. The story of the birth of God we find in this scripture is that instead he comes to our mess. He comes to where we are decidedly not ready, where we are decidedly not joyful, and we are decidedly not hopeful. Why? Because he loves us. Because he has favor on us. Because he brings into darkness true light. And I think this is why I love the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth so much. In the advent of John the Baptist. At first glance, their lives seem to be perfect, right? Just everything they got going for them. I mean, she's a descendant of Aaron. The very first priest ever. Zacharias, her husband, is a priest, and he just he's just won the priestly lottery. So let me explain what that means. So there was one temple, there's always been one temple, and there's a lot of priests, and so there's there's more priests than there are jobs to go around. So what what happened with the priests back then is they were divided up into 24 divisions, and each division would go to the temple for two non-consecutive weeks every year. And when they when they got there, they all drew lots for the jobs that need to be done. And not every priest got a job. They just weren't enough jobs. But to get the job of lighting incense in the holy place, some scholars say even if you won it, and most priests never won it, but even if you won that lot, you could never win it again. Once in a life. He just won the lottery. Things are great with this family. Luke goes on to tell us they were most, they were highly moral people, obeying the law with such strict discipline that he even calls them blameless. And all of this paints a very neat and tidy picture of a family that has it all together. And it's the perfect place for God to come. Because God loves perfect families. But not so fast. Not so fast. You have to read Scripture slowly. Carefully. They were as messy as us. Messy, messy, messy. First big hint. Elizabeth's reaction to her pregnancy. And these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. She's not being dramatic. Elizabeth lived most of her adult life with profound disgrace. Why? Because she didn't have children. Now see, people that want children today and can't have them, that's a major disappointment. And that hurts, and it hurts a lot, and that is real suffering. In this culture, not only did it hurt and was it caused suffering, to not have kids was a catastrophe. Now listen... And one thing I'm not doing, and this is very important, I'm not comparing pain. Remember, comparing pain is never an adequate answer to the human condition, ever, ever. You know when you say to yourself, oh, it could be worse, that doesn't help. And when someone says to you, oh, it could be worse, that that doesn't help. Don't do that. That is a human response to pain, and it doesn't work. It's not a Christian response to pain, even though a lot of Christians talk like that. I grew up, God bless my mother, I love my mother, but, and she did suffer. I mean, massive surgeries when I was a kid, but every time I was sick, oh, David, you don't know what pain is. <laughs> I know what my pain is. Don't ever minimize pain or compare pain. That is not an adequate answer. Just like moralizing pain, that is not an adequate answer either. I'm not comparing Elizabeth's pain to someone who doesn't have children today. I simply want us to see the details of her suffering. 
So I called it a catastrophe because on a few levels it was. It was financially a catastrophe not to have kids. See, that culture, that time, the kids were the 401k. They were the assisted living. They were the nursing homes. And people who didn't have kids knew as soon as they were old enough and not able to take care of themselves, no one would take care of them. And we saw in last week's sermon, last, oh, that's what I just called my teaching a sermon. We saw in last week's teaching that people didn't take care of the poor and the outcasts very well in those days. That was one of God's big peeves. And furthermore, it was a catastrophe socially and religiously. You see, Jewish theology can be read, probably shouldn't be, but it can be read to suggest that if you do not have kids, you must have done something wrong. See, let's go back, way back to Genesis. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children, I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? That's just excellent. You need to bring that to your marriage class deal. That's a great way for a husband to be. Patient, kind, gentle, understanding. (laughs) So, Jacob, being a typical guy, and then she eventually does have kids, and what does she say? She says, then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. In Deuteronomy, Moses wrote, the Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb. And then even the psalmist said, Children are heritage from the Lord, offspring are reward from it. So what happens, like happens in Christian theology too, is this gets taken and all of a sudden it gets twisted. And people start thinking, well, if children are a gift of God, then no, oh, if you don't have kids, it's a curse from God. And it's your fault. You must have done something wrong. So Elizabeth was really living like this. This was her religious heritage, her Husband was a priest, which, and go ahead, Jesse, you can just go ahead. And that, think about that, what the people must have said about her, said to her. She lived with real disgrace. This wasn't poetry, it wasn't dramatic, it was a lot of suffering. Zacharias, while enduring the same disgrace, maybe even more because they probably talked behind his back, oh, he's a priest and he can't have kids, he must have a lot of skeletons in his closet. He also seems to have fallen into hopelessness and a bit of despair and maybe lack of faith. And he's a priest. See, this is what he said to the angel. He said, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along the age. He didn't believe the angel and I think it's because he probably stopped praying for a kid years ago. He probably gave up hope. We all know what that feels like. When you give up hope. Those moments when you just don't have hope in your life. It's not easy. There's a lot of people right now today waking up without any hope. And on a larger scale, they lived with suffering simply because of who they were in the time and space they lived. Remember, they were living under the occupation of a foreign empire. And we know nothing about them. But trust me, that's never fun. Further, they were Israelites. And their immediate ruler, King Herod, was not Jew by blood. King Herod was Jewish by practice only. And for Israelites in those days, it was an absolute humiliation to be ruled by a non-Jewish leader. 
Also, Herod was an absolute madman. He killed indiscriminately. He even killed members of his own family indiscriminately. He's the one that we in Christendom memorialize for being behind the massacre of the innocent. A term that has been used this weekend a lot in the newspapers. Except when Herod did it, it was state sanctioned. When he slaughtered the children in Bethlehem. And you know what else Herod did? This is how mad he was. Right before when he was sick and he knew he was going to die, he rounded up a bunch of prominent Jewish people and held them captive so they would be killed when he died to ensure that the people would mourn his death. He was absolutely nuts. They lived under that. Now, thank God his kids didn't carry that out. But they, I, I think what I'm trying to say is it's clear that Zacharias and Elizabeth did not live lives from a courier and Ives Prince. That is not their lives. Their lives were messy. Their lives were difficult. Their lives were full of suffering and even hopelessness. But that is exactly where God chose to come. And visit his faithfulness. Bring the fulfillment of his promise. And insert hope into their hopelessness. And I think Zachariah's response to the birth of his son can help us understand what it is God is bringing into our lives. And we have to be very, very careful here. Because sometimes, I think, Christian theology makes it worse. Because it's been turned into something it never should have been turned into. So, expectations of the wrong kind of what God is doing and might be trying to do for us can leave us as empty as we feel sometimes in those first couple weeks of January. You know, you get that that thing where you realize that all the presents and all the parties and all the celebrations of Christmas and all the days of expectation. You know, we have a great Advent calendar at home. They didn't change a lot. You wake up second week in January, and if you're ill, you're still ill. Relationships are broken, they're still broken. If you're struggling financially, you're still struggling. Maybe more if you spent way too much money on Christmas. All those fears that we put in the closet so Santa could come come rushing back. And I see that happen a lot with Christians because we have the same expectation. But see, not once in Zechariah's prayer, if you read it carefully, does he thank God for his son. For Zechariah understood the hope of God in the midst of our hopelessness is not predicated on situations being changed. It is not dependent on our suffering being ended here and now. It is different than that. And it is bigger than that. And if we understand that, we can talk to people. But if your theology is as big as your situation now being changed, 
what do you really have to tell yourself in the face of profound evil? What could you really tell those parents in Connecticut? Their situation's not changing. hope God gives is based on his faithfulness. His faithfulness. See, the faithfulness he exhibited when he came the first time as a baby in Bethlehem was a fulfillment of a promise he made us at the beginning of time. He promised right in the very beginning, don't worry, I will take care of this mess. I will come. And he did. So we can live with hope that he is going to come again. Because he was faithful once. The hope God is trying to insert into our lives, the hope that Zechariah thanked him for, is that we can know our sins are forgiven. And what that means is that we can know that nothing, absolutely nothing, even our own evil, can separate us from His love. Nothing. Like David's great illustration this morning, before we're even in the house, God's got us tagged as family. And it's the hope that suffering now is not the final chapter of our stories. All of our stories, no matter how bad they are, will end on the other side of suffering. That's the only hope in the face of evil. It says God is making all things new. To believe that is to be hopeful that evil doesn't win. It doesn't win. And there is nothing else that can even begin to speak into profound hurt than that evil doesn't win. Love will win. He came once. He's going to come again. No matter how bad it gets. That's the story of Christmas. See, St. John told us that God said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look. I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death. I want you to think about something. If you had to give someone the keys of your death, who would it be? And I'm sure most of us just fleetingly started to think of people in our lives that are most loyal, most loving, most faithful. I can promise you, the person who holds them is more loving than that person more loyal, more faithful. He already demonstrated it by letting us kill him. 
The one who holds those keys is the one who brings hope into our messiness, is the one who is born in the mangers of our suffering. Where is it that we're truly needing? Where is our life broken? Where do we feel inadequate and unprepared for life? Where are the empty spaces? Where do we hunger? Maybe it's alienation or maybe it's loneliness. Maybe it's poor health or financial stress. Maybe it's depression or overwhelming fears or maybe evil has come knocking on our door. These are the mangers of our lives where God is asking to be born. Listen carefully. Carefully to the lowly, broken places of our lives. Because God is looking with favor on our lowliness. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy today. A Savior has been born for all of us.